You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast, the Halloween edition. This podcast was created by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund as part of our education program. My name is Alex Cox, and in this episode, we speak to two of my favorite horror fans in the comic book industry. Uh, the first is Jeff Zorno, who is an illustrator and a cartoonist currently working on Godzilla, Rulers of Earth from IDW Publishing. We talked to Jeff about EC Comics, Godzilla, and Japanese horror comics, of which Jeff is probably the foremost expert that I know of. We also speak to Scott Alley, who is the editor-in-chief at Dark Horse Comics. Uh, we talk to him about his favorite horror comics, his favorite horror movies and novels, and uh, what he's currently working on. We start off the podcast with uh, Jeff Zorno, and he discusses his uh, early influences in reading and creating horror comics. Here he is. Wake up. You didn't get into comics really until I was 12. I had some comics um, when I was a kid, um, and you know, specifically some old like ghost story comics from like either Globe Key or Dell or something like that. Um, but uh, I was mostly interested in drawing cartoons when I was younger, and then when I was 12, started getting into like Spider-Man and you know, superior comics. Spider-Man mostly because he reminded me of Ultraman <laughs> in the the look, and you know, he's just got a great costume. But um, so then I, you know, right then I wanted to become a comic book artist, and uh, I'm trying to think. I was always into horror, especially then, because uh, I saw Friday Thirteenth final chapter when I was ten, and then immediately got addicted to hardcore horror movies. Um, and I'm, I, I honestly don't remember what like the first horror comic I probably read was, but I do remember the first co- horror comic that ever left an impression on me. <laughs> sure, that <laughs> which works. Which was uh, a. Yeah, Gore Shriek number one, dude. That is like the all-time most badass horror comic of the 80s, hands down. Um, it was the the comic, you know, that you had to hide from your mom, because um, it was just, you know, so outrageous. It even said on the on the it was the first comic I ever uh, saw that had like not for children uh, printed on the cover. <laughs> Do you remember who published it? Oh yeah, it was um, Fantico. And it was actually uh, Greg Capullo's very first published artwork, as as far as I know. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it's 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 pretty badass. Uh, Gore Shriek number one also has my all-time favorite short horror comic story, which is from Stephen Bissett, this story, three-page story called Cottonmouth, and that always left a huge impression on me because he was able to do this horrifying, really quick horror clip in three pages. And for years and years and years and years, I was always trying to come up with like a cool three-page kind of horror story. And I finally got one last year, which I posted on my DeviantArt that I did for Halloween. And then I came up with another one this year, and I'm going to try and do an annual thing with that, just three-page horror stories, um, just because, you know, that, that one Steve Bissett story from the 80s just blew my mind. <laughs> and that was in the same comic? Yeah, Gore Shriek number one. It was the last story. Um. So you were you were a movie fan primarily? Um, yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I was really addicted to TV and, and, and movies when I was really young, and but uh, used that as like drawing fuel, um, and then got into comics like a little bit later, you know, right? By like twelve, and that's when it was like, all right, screw the cartoon thing. I just want to draw like comics and cool badass stuff. <laughs> so, but you were 
Um, and you were really into Japanese movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, for all my life, I was into Godzilla, and Ultraman came at a very early age, and then Gatchaman, Battle of the Planet stuff. And I just sort of recognized um, these all things had links because I would read the credits, and they were all Japanese people. <laughs> did you uh, did you seek out the uh, the manga originally, or was that take a little bit of time to put that together? Uh, that took, yeah, that definitely took some time. Uh, that wasn't until I was actually collecting comics regularly, like I said, after like, around the age of 12. Um, sure. Uh, I'm trying to remember when it was. It was sometime later that year. Um, my friends discovered one of Gary Reed's uh, initial um, main comic shops, Readers Exchange, it was originally called, and then it just they shortened it to Readers, which was the greatest comic shop ever that I've ever been into all my you know, to this day it's still the greatest shop especially when you consider back in the, the, the mid to later 80s this is like 86 when we discovered the place they had the place was huge it was the only place we that had a major like back issue section but they also had like video games that you could play and they had a Japanese import section and a huge um, Japanese bootleg anime slash sci-fi rental section where you could rent bootleg anime and cool stuff. When I was in high school, uh, a buddy of mine had a copy of um, of uh, uh, Hideshi Hino's uh, Panorama of Hell, uh-huh. um, which was, you know, uh, came out, I want to say late 89 or early 90s somewhere around there and was so that, did Hell it, Baby it came, came out in the States or um, it came out in Japan in the late 80s yeah okay yeah yeah uh, I can't remember who put it out off the top of my head um, I have Hell Baby a copy of Hell Baby around somewhere but um, anyways I, when I was in high school yeah my buddy had a copy of Panorama's Hell and we were just like whoa <laughs> I never was able to find a copy after that you know uh, I only ever saw his um, and now that book runs on eBay for like you know over a hundred dollars. Sure. But um, uh, but yeah, I remember seeing Hideshi Hino way back then, and that you know that book is just so over the top and ghoulish, and but with his crazy cartoony style, it was just you know. Well, he's probably one of the on that, like and, uh, top three manga horror artists. Oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, when they started uh, bringing his stuff over. In all those volumes, when was, whenever that was, the early mid two thousands, uh, yeah, I was eating that stuff up because I was like, "Oh, I remember this guy." <laughs> well, there was a real renaissance, I guess, in the early two thousands, where Drifting Classroom and uh, Cat Eyed Boy and all that stuff started coming over after, I guess, Uzumaki and the um, the Ring manga, right? Um, and all that stuff was was amazing. But yeah. you you had, I mean, you were into that stuff a lot earlier than the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah. I I remember when uh, the first um, Genji Ito book started coming over. I think they, they first brought over Tomie and uh, picked, you know check that out in the store. And I, I was that was the very first Genji Ito comics was the very first time I read horror comics that freaked me the hell out. Yeah. <laughs> like like really like there's always been really cool and you know spooky horror comics, but like I mean honestly. You don't get scared necessarily reading Hellboy, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. but it's like still that very cool H.P. Lovecrafty like horror vibe. Um, 
But, uh, yeah, Junji Ito's books just legit were freaking me out, and I was loving it. And it was, yeah, I, his well, art style and just the way he portrayed his characters. And, you know, some of the stories were just written so simply. So, he yeah. does that weird, like, Cronenberg, like, body horror, which is yeah, really yeah, unsettling. It's like It's like reading somebody's nightmare. Yeah, yeah, I was actually just about to say also the way he writes his characters and sometimes just how he, like, the plot of the story itself uh, reminds me of, like, childhood nightmares that I would have. Because, like, a lot of times they're just filled with high strangeness, you know. That, that's kind of what his stuff is all about to me. Um, if, you, if you had to, like, recommend one Jinji Ito book to somebody that had never oh, uh, read any manga Off the top of my head, I... I, I I always recommend Uzumaki, especially yeah. now that there's that really nice hardcover edition that Viz put out, um, which I love. That is my all-time favorite Jinji Ito book so far. I'm still trying to get through, you know, his collection of works. It's kind of hard because not a lot of it has been brought over here and translated. There's a lot of it to read free on the internet, but, you know, it's so much nice to actually have a book. I do have a bunch of Jinji Ito books untranslated that friends have brought me and sent me from Japan. Which is a uh, you know part of my Genji Ito connection. Right. I have this one book. I don't even know what this is. It's like um, it's got some comics in the back. It's some sort of ghost story book. But like the whole front half of it is like either just a written story or it's prose with Genji Ito's illustrations along with it. But it's a really pretty book. Oh, I'm sure he's a great illustrator. Yeah. Um, did you see? He just recently did a Pokemon. Uh, yes. Illustration for Halloween. Yes, it's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> um, what? Uh, so, who who else are are you a fan of from from Japan when it comes to horror stuff? My other favorite Japanese artist though is Takahiko Inoue um, and Vagabond. That to me is just right now. Oh, sure. Like, yeah, yeah. The, the the highest pedestal that you could ever put a, a comic book on that that's Vagabond to me right now. Yeah, it's just like the godliest of all books uh, at the moment. It's the, it has been for me for a good couple of years. It's the Gru of Japan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, some classic horror comics. Um, you you sure. are, you're an EC fan, like most oh, yeah. people are. What's uh, Talk about mm-hmm. your first experience reading some EC reprints and, uh, and just who of that, of that class of artists really like spoke to well, you. I, well, that all ended up. I ended up getting into the EC uh, thing. I, mean, I, I remember, you know, I'd seen tales from the crypt books and stuff like that. You know, um, you know, throughout the years when I was younger, collecting comics and stuff. But uh, for the most part, when I was younger until my teenage years, like I can't say I really went for a lot of horror comics. There wasn't a whole lot to really choose from back then either. But. Um, you know, with exception of like you know some of the Dead Worlds. Well, I didn't come to like the '90s, but I was about to say Dead World um, and, and all that black and white stuff. But anyways, uh, when I when I got to New York to go to SVA and I you know was looking up all of the the you know uh, you know teachers there and stuff like you know Joe Orlando and Carmen Antonio and Klaus Jansen and all that, um, you know. Joe Orlando, I remember, you know, everybody being like, oh, blah, 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 he's, you know, been at DC Forever, Mad Magazine, this and that. And then I remember someone mentioning, like, oh, yeah, he's been around forever, though, like, way back in the Tales from the Crypt days. And I was like, oh, Jesus, he worked on that stuff? So then I went to, uh, you know, one of 
the local shops in Manhattan and just started grabbing like all those um, reprints from the 90s that were coming out and was looking specifically for as many uh, issues I could find like you know that had Joe Orlando in them with either Tales from the Crypt or Weird Science and all that stuff and um, yeah Joe became one of my mentors at the school and uh, when I kind of went to him and was like hey you know I've had this you know huge uh, attention to draw horror stuff he uh, just absolutely um, egged me on to it, you know. Just like, oh, well, everybody wants to draw X-Men, so blood and guts would probably, you know, make you stand out for sure. <laughs> so he encouraged that stuff all the way. Yeah, once I really got into the, the, the East and stuff, um, pretty much my, uh, my uh, all-time favorite to come out of that group is probably Jack Davis. Yeah. He's just, oh. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is about... Jack Davis, but it's like that perfect blend of like cartoony and pretty and just lush. Um, it's just those inks are so rich. Uh, right after him would probably be Wally Wood. You know what's crazy about Jack Davis? When you see the artist editions, um, I have one that I and I have an issue like a original uh, Two Fisted Tales or whatever um, that I and I compared the pages. And the amount of detail that was lost, like, you know that oh, there's going to be some detail that's lost, but it really, like, some of that, like, feathery, crosshatchy line work, it just turns into, like, mud on that old newsprint. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I've, I've come to the conclusion that yeah. to, like, really appreciate those, you have to have the artist edition. We also have to remember, too, that uh, they were drawing on boards that were, like, double the size of, like, modern-day boards, and... Yeah. The comics were even bigger than they are today back then. So yeah, um, they were all pretty much all putting in way more work than they needed to. Yeah, <laughs> but like the everything, every time I've ever read interviews or when I even you know would speak to Joe Orlando about working you know at EC back in the day, you know himself, uh, he basically would you know the, the basic vibe was they were like hell bent on putting out the greatest books that no one could compete with. And they were all had this like great camaraderie and like uh, friendly like self competition with each other going on in the office to see you know who could outdraw who and whatnot and you know and once that whole thing kind of like started going it just made the product itself better and better which I was like wow what a great what a great philosophy and what a great way to run a company <laughs> you know? yeah. is is Godzilla a, a horror or is that sci-fi? Um, I guess uh, Toho would want to classify it as sci-fi, but there are times where it can get a little horror-ish. Where, where would you put it? Out, you know. Oh, I would probably put it in sci-fi. Yeah. It could be horror, depending on you know what tone you want to take. I mean, the first movie is more horror than sci-fi to me, mm -hmm. the original one. So if you were let's let's talk about Godzilla just a little more. If you if somebody was yeah. like I I don't know where to start with this aside from the first Godzilla movie, where would you point them if you wanted to give them like the like yeah, platonic a, ideal a of a Godzilla of, movie? Yeah, there's a good, there's a good couple of those that I I, I can point to usually. A lot of times just cuz it's easy an easy good Godzilla movie to point people to is like I'll, a lot of times I'll just say hey well you can start with Godzilla vs. King Kong because everybody knows and loves King Kong um, and it is to this day still one of the most popular and most money making you know uh, entries into the franchise um, but then I also like to point out uh, the original Mothra vs. Godzilla 
that's just a really great one. It's uh, good. That was like you know when they're pretty much like just about at their peak. Um, also, um, sometimes I like to do uh, the um, Ghidorah the Three Headed Monster, uh, mm-hmm. but it depends on the situation. If if I think that they're gonna you know, uh, not take it too seriously. Or, I mean, if, if they want to see a goofy Godzilla movie, I might show them that one. But if they want to see, like, hey, I want to know, like, you know, I want to see, a, like, a badass Godzilla movie, then I'll usually skip to the 80s or 90s, and I'll pull out, you know, either The Return of Godzilla, also known as Godzilla 1985, or I'll pull out uh, the 1991 version of Godzilla, or 1993 version of Godzilla as Mechagodzilla, um, which is probably my favorite from the 90s. Um, and Godzilla's Biolante, sometimes I'll pull that out too, even though that one's really weird. I just, I love that movie. And usually once Biolante shows up, people are like, ooh, cool. So if you wanted to point to some, to bring it back to comics, uh, some giant monster comics, just monster comics in general, but mm. aside from the Godzilla that you were, you were working on, is there one in particular where you'd say this is a, a must-read? Um, yeah, dude. Um, I would say, honestly, I'm, my, my favorite giant monster comic is the manga adaptation of The Return of Godzilla that Dark Horse put out in the 80s. Um, I don't know, just because that movie is rad, and when they did the manga for it, I was just really, really excited to, to find that coming over here. Marvel did the Godzilla in the 70s. That's it out in the black and white phone book collection yeah honestly i i never got into that excuse me i never got into that stuff when i was a kid in the 70s even like uh with the hanna-barbera cartoon as much of a godzilla fanatic as i was like that stuff like even as like like five that stuff bothered me because i would look at it and i'd be like dude that's not godzilla that's not godzilla in the least like i'm sorry none of this for me i can't like i can't even do that Oh yeah, no, I was gonna say I was about to like you know, you know smack my head against the wall because like if we're talking about uh, other you know really awesome of my favorite horror comics, dude, Tomb of Dracula from Marvel in the seventies. That book is badass. Yeah, <laughs> that book just totally rocks. Um, I cannot uh, praise Tomb of Dracula enough. Where does Werewolf um, by Night fit in I mean, that scale? Towards the end, it got a little. I like Werewolf by Night, but it's mostly because I really love the 70s Paul Nashi werewolf movie series from Spain, uh-huh. which is essentially the exact same concept of Werewolf by Night. <laughs> it's pretty much this guy who's a werewolf who ends up fighting all these other monsters. A lot of times it's vampire, you know, women and, you know, um, Frankenstein monsters and, you know, whatnot. And there's even one where he battles a yeti. Um, but yeah, <laughs> those movies are like totally great, and they, they were all coming out around the same time as Werewolf by Night. So I sometimes wonder if uh, you know the dudes over some of the dudes over at Marvel were just like hardcore horror fiends, and were somehow catching you know some of the, the Paul Nashy stuff in the '70s at the time, and just being like, oh, dude, that'd make a great comic book. Yeah, I actually ripped off the co- the concept myself for a, a one shot I did through. Um, the guys with 68 and we did a anthology through Image years back called uh, Horror Book and uh, I just basically did a 27 page werewolf thing where he, it was like Bruce Lee's uh, Tower of Death <laughs> basically the werewolf had to go up to this tower to save some kids that were kidnapped by a vampire and each level had a different monster for him to fight like a giant spider and a Frankenstein monster and like you know a room full of demon bats and all this crazy stuff <laughs> 
It was like Jim Cotta, but with a werewolf. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Werewolf Cotta. Yeah. All right, great. Thank you so much, Jeff. No problem, bro. I heard a birdie sing. Next up, we have Scott Alley, who, as I mentioned, is the editor-in-chief at Dark Horse Comics and a writer himself. Um, he's written some very great stuff. I encourage everybody to look up some of his titles, including my personal favorite, which are a couple of Solomon Kane miniseries he did a few years ago. Um, Scott came to us on the phone from Portland, Oregon, and at the time of recording... My daughter, who is one years old, happened to be in the room, and she was very excited to hear Scott's voice. She makes some noise throughout the recording. I hope it's not too distracting. And uh, she gradually kind of stomps away and starts to play with her toys, which again, you can hear uh, some baby toys in the background. I apologize. She was very excited to hear from Scott, and I hope that you will be too. Here he is, Scott Alley. I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts um, that, to me, always felt like a town from a horror story. It felt a lot like Salem's Lot, which was my favorite book growing up. And um, I had this best friend, Derek, who's, uh, he lived in an apartment building that his dad owned and managed, and um, there were these guys who lived upstairs who were pot dealers, and um, they had a bunch of uh, underground comics from, um, from Last Gasp. And so some of the first comics that I ever read was like Skull and Slow Death, um, which are still sort of my favorite um, horror comics. And I read those before I ever read superhero comics. As a little kid, I remember having one Spider-Man comic and one Star Wars comic. And that was it besides these undergrounds that I got from our neighborhood um, drug dealers. And uh, and so Greg Irons and Richard Corbin were... um, were my first favorite comic book artists, and uh, and I believe I kind of discovered Lovecraft through issue four of Skull, which was totally devoted to um, to Lovecraft, and uh, and that was a comic that just, that just blew my mind. Um, the cover was so grim and ghastly and ugly, and the back cover was this really lurid painting of a naked woman on a bed, terrified as a bunch of monsters came at her. Um, and this is stuff that I was exposed to when I was like probably nine years old and um, definitely established my tastes early on. Do you remember who the uh, creators were in that? You know, I don't remember who was in that that particular issue of Skull. And I think, if I recall, neither Greg or Corb were in that issue. I think Spain was in that one mm-hmm. and some other guys like that. Um it was not a particularly good issue of Skull, and it wasn't <laughs> one of my favorite issues of Skull, uh, but it was the craziest, and the back cover, again, was so bizarre. But, you know, the thing about those comics, they were really lurid um, and, and grotesque, but but in a, in a, in a, in a somewhat kind of old-fashioned way. They weren't, they, they weren't um, predictors of the, like, slasher... And sex, violence, com- uh, horror movies of the '80s, which I never got into. I was really into horror when I was really young, and slightly before, you know, 1980, and before the slasher movies came along. And I actually never went in for that stuff. I never got into that stuff at all, and I never saw most of that stuff until a few years ago. I became friends with Tim Seeley and started reading *Pack Slash*. 
and realized that as a devout horror geek who grew up in the 1980s, it was weird that I'd never seen um, a lot of the Friday the 13th movies or a lot of the Halloween movies or any of the other stuff. Like, I never saw Child's Play. I've still never seen a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, Eva didn't like that either. She's um, very surprised. Very surprised. But um, I, uh, that just wasn't what I was into. I, I, the movies that blew my mind were The Exorcist and The Shining. Um, and I think, you know, looking back on those, because this month I'm, I'm re-watching a lot of movies and I've been going through a lot of comics. And the stuff that made the impression on me was, was usually somewhat more kind of classic in its approach. Did you like the Salem's Lot miniseries? I loved it, and um, I thought it was one of the best things that anybody had ever filmed. And then last summer, Sid and I were on this road trip, and, um, you know, Salem's Lot, the Salem's Lot miniseries is hard to get. And we were in the comic shop in um, in, in uh, Sheridan, Wyoming, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, like, down in a basement, and it's got a lot of, uh, got a lot of junk down there and, and comics and old VHS tapes, and they have like five copies in very good condition of Salem's Lot miniseries. So I bought it, and as soon as we got home, um, and it was like $5, I bought it, and as soon as we got home, I watched it, and I was like, oh my God, this thing is a mess. It's almost unwatchable. Um, it's not scenes that lead into other scenes. It's just a, a train wreck of footage thrown together. Um, but the way that Toby Hooper set up the Danny Glick at the window bit, that um, that was pretty terrifying. That was really well done. That's one of those things that seems to have like stuck with everybody that saw it when they were a kid. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that movie blew my mind when I was 10 or whatever, however old I was when it came out. Um, but it is really not very good. The, the creature makeup is pretty cool, too. Yeah, but but that was weird too. It's like, why did they just copy straight up copy Nosferatu? It's a weird choice. It looks good, it, but it's weird. And it's absolutely not the character that King wrote in the novel. And the novel remains like one of my favorite things. I've literally probably read the book twelve times um, over the years, and every time I read it, it scares the hell out of me. In general, did you like uh, horror prose literature when you were a kid? Was that something you were down with? Yeah, and, and, and largely it was Stephen King, because um, I got in at a good age. I, 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 uh, when I first discovered Stephen King, he only had like three or four books out, so there were a few books that I could, um, you know, could kind of catch up on, and then, uh, and then I proceeded to read the stuff as it came out through the early 80s, and by the late 80s, I eventually kind of had had enough, and I read Pet Cemetery was either Pet Cemetery or It, I don't remember the order they came out in, but when Pet Cemetery and It came out, both of those books scared the hell out of me in a really fantastic way. Um, but then, I guess Pet Cemetery was first, and then after It came out, I kind of lost interest in him as a writer. But years later, I went back and realized that losing interest in him as a writer had as much to do with just the fact that I had read so much that I couldn't keep exclusively reading Stephen King books for very long. Um, and also, he sort of changed his, his thing. But his his real like old-fashioned New England approach to horror really resonated with me. Um, partly because when I would read most of his stories, I felt like they took place in the time that I lived in. Rereading Salem's Lot, I think last year was the last time I read it. Rereading Salem's Lot last year, 
felt like getting in a time machine and going back to my childhood, which I really appreciate. I love a book that can give you such a distinctive feeling of place that you, you know, you, you really become there. I hate, <clears throat> there's a cliche among reviewers or whoever um, saying that like, oh, well, the city is a character in the book, you know, or the city is like, like Sin City is a character in Sin City. Right. Um, and it's like, well, n no, what that is is just the creator did an amazing job of making the place feel real to you. Um, you know, maybe there are cases where that line makes more sense, but generally I think it's just people talking about a creator who's really made the place feel very vivid. And it's something that I shoot for in my own work because it's meant so much to me in, in other people's work when I've read it. And there's plenty, plenty of people who don't so much do that. Um, but it, it always adds a level to me. It's like I get to a point where not only do I find the characters interesting and everything else, but the place becomes a place that I want to spend time in, even if it's scary. The way Mignola does Hellboy in Hell actually does that for me. Like the way Mike's doing Hellboy in Hell... It's like it's a love letter to a place that only exists in his own head and happens to be hell. Um, but he makes hell feel like such a real place. I really, you know, I, I dig that part of the book especially. Well, he's, I mean, he's particular. we're going on a tangent here, but he's particularly good at that. Like all of the Hellboy stories, the place and the time that they're set informs so much of what's going on. And it's crazy to think that like, he's writing about Ireland in the 1930s and he's right. just nailing this kind of tone and this like mood and feeling so well, and it's drastically different than when he writes about like you know Poland in the fifties or whatever. So. Right, right. And with him, it's um, especially when he draws the stuff. When he draws the stuff, is really how he does it and, and how he does it so well, um, which is which is interesting because a lot of people, a lot of artists, when they achieve that, it's by just like heaping on the detail. Like Max Fiamara is, I think, one of the best guys because when I really want to nail a location, when I really want to make this town at the end of the world feel very real, Max just like pours it on and does such a brilliant job with it. But he does it through heaping on detail and detail and detail. And Mike isn't a guy that heaps on tons of detail, but Mike's a guy who knows how to choose just the right detail just the right little bits and string it all together with a lot of black and it evokes the place more than a heavily rendered drawing you know, yeah. necessarily ever could. Yeah, Eva agrees too. Eva definitely thinks that was a good point. Let's roll back to, to Lovecraft. You, you briefly touched on Lovecraft and your first introduction to that. Did that lead you directly to the literature? It, it took a while because I think I think it was that issue. That issue of Skull made me aware of Lovecraft, but I think it was a while before I ever read anything. And then it was it was King who got me there um, with the short story Jerusalem's Lot, which is one of his Lovecraft pastiches. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Jerusalem's Lot that made me think, wait a minute, I gotta I gotta check out this Lovecraft character. Um, but yeah, Skull. Issue four of Skull, I think it was four, maybe it was three, but that issue of Skull made me aware of Lovecraft for the first time, really. But then it was um, it was probably King that, that pushed me to read that stuff. If I had tried reading Lovecraft when I was nine years old, I would have just collapsed under the pressure. But it was a few years later that I was ready for it. I've always loved the way that creative stuff leads you backwards through time. Like, um, my favorite band when I was a little kid um, was the Stones, and getting into the Stones led me 
to, to, to Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters and all those guys, um, and even further back sometimes, you know. And, um, and I love how literature does that with an incredibly long path backward. But, yeah, so it was King that led me to Lovecraft, and, um, and then Lovecraft kind of led me to older stuff. And when you read Lovecraft's precursors, Lovecraft stuff makes a lot more sense. You know, and I think probably growing up where I grew up, I was reading Poe long before I was reading Lovecraft, because back, back then kids in school had to read Poe, so I, I knew that stuff kind of inside and out. Um, and Poe also sort of leads you backwards through time to, to earlier um, earlier stuff. Uh, how, how far back do your interests go in terms of literature? Like, do you go all the ba- way back to the Penny Dreadful stuff and, like, Varney the Vampire? Or I think I know more about that stuff than I've really read that stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, like, Varney the Vampire. Like, I've read Varney the Vampire, but not much other stuff like that. But I don't know. I mean, it's not like I primarily read stuff from the 1800s. Um, but I've, I've, like, picked through it and read certain stuff. 20th century stuff is easier to relate to generally, but it's that early 20th century stuff before the horror genre became so influenced by um, Hollywood that, uh, that I find more interesting. When, when radio plays and, and pulps and the pre-pulp stuff was really where horror lived, um, it was way more interesting. It was way more defiant of your expectations. And I guess I kind of like, I like to cling to a certain naivete by going back to the earlier stuff and trying to approach it cold like a viewer of the time or a reader of the time would have. And forget, you know, like if you read Dracula and you have Twilight and Kristen Stewart in your head, then maybe those things would be capable of ruining Dracula for you. Um, But if you just read it, for what it is, independent and on its own, then it's um, you know, then, then it's it's brilliant stuff, and you can get swept away in the dream of it in the appropriate way, and that's what I want. I was watching this movie the other night, um, this new movie called Possession, right? Mm-hmm. And it's and it's okay, like it's an okay movie, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who I think is the guy from uh, Watchmen, um, he uh, he was in it, and he's pretty good. Um, but there's a bit in that movie, you know, spoiler alert, where um, there's a bit in the movie where his daughter is possessed by something. So Jeffrey Dean Morgan is this kind of like big, bulky, swarthy guy with a big head of black hair. And he's holding his daughter, shaking her, saying, take me, take me instead. Which word for word and in every way possible is like a direct quote from The Exorcist. Right. And it, you even have a guy who looks kind of like Damien Karras from The Exorcist shaking this little girl who's possessed who could be a little Linda Blair. And, um, you know, and for some people, they're going to see possession first, and then they watch The Exorcist. They're going to think, oh, I've seen this before. And it's like, well, no, you hadn't, but now everybody's copied it so much from, you know, Richard Pryor to... Uh, to, to to cynical moves like that, like a movie that's just going to copy it so directly, thinking, well, it worked for them, maybe it'll work for us. Um, it, it, you know, it's one of the things I think about with my kid, is I want him to watch this stuff in the proper order. I want him to see Rosemary's Baby before he's seen every other movie about de- devil worship, 
because otherwise Rosemary's Baby might be a really like dry, slow build for him. You right now, you're an editor. You're a writer. I am. Do you want to talk a little bit about like your uh, what what you're working on first of all, and just how you kind of approach it? Yeah. Um, what does Eva think? Does she want me to talk about that? She stuff? thinks it's hilarious. Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> um, you know, with the. My main, you know, my main gig most of the time is the Mignola verse, and with the Mignola books, we do a lot of different things, ranging from straight up horror comics out through all sorts of kinds of action adventure comics. You know, Lobster Johnson has a lot of weird mystery and and mood to it, but it's really kind of a, a crime action adventure comic. And BPRD tends to be more action adventure based, but um, you know, and Mike is doing what Mike's doing in Hellboy sort of defies genre. Um, but it's, you know, it's his own version of like a dark take on mythology or a kind of grim take on a mythological kind of outlook. But with Abe, you know, there's a lot of action because it's a Mignola book. And I think often action can be kind of counterproductive to the mood of a horror comic. Um, but depending on the, the arc of Abe, I lean more toward really doing a horror comic and really trying to find that atmosphere and, and find those scary moments um, and uh, and deal with this subject matter that I love so much because the real old school occult um, supernatural stuff is just super appealing to me. I did a, a we did an arc of Abe in issues nine through eleven um, that was on zombies and I just. You know, I've been looking at all the zombie stuff out there, and it's like nobody is doing voodoo zombies. Everything is uh, kind of post-Romero zombies, where there doesn't feel like there's any sort of mystical or spiritual aspect to it at all. And um, and so, you know, I wanted to get into that a little bit and deal with the voodoo stuff and deal with the magic of zombies and not just, um, you know, focusing on them purely as mindless flesh eaters with no origins or, or background. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's the whole point of doing the Abe series was me and Mike saying, we want to do a book that is more, you know, focused on an individual character going through horror stories in a world that's sort of overrun with horror. And actually the latest issue of BPRD, BPRD 124, by uh, Mike and Arcudi and Tyler Crook, um, was one of the best versions of that that we've done in a while like it got great reviews everybody really loved it it was super light on action i mean there's actually no real action in it it's just this grim little horror story by the from the point of view of one guy stuck in a small town stuck in santa fe um after a giant monster has basically murdered half the town and um and it was funny the way it came about because often in BPRD, Arcudi has like a lot of leeway and is really kind of going his own way with the, with the individual stories. But this was one that Mike kind of proposed to me as a story. He kind of like roughed out the idea for it. And, um, and I was like, oh, that would be, a, you know, I can't remember if it was his idea or mine, but we agreed that it would be a great idea for Tyler to draw it. And, you know, Mike came up with the story and we thought this is the perfect thing for Tyler Crook to draw as opposed to a big action thing, this is very personal and very weird, and Tyler just nailed it. Um, but I said, you know, we were like, yeah, we agreed that Tyler would be the best guy to draw it, and I said, and that's exactly the kind of story that Arcudi can write so well, and Mike was kind of like, well, well, yeah, but I mean, it was, you know, 
my idea. That one was very much Mike's idea, and um, and uh, gave us room to slow down and take in that that mood and atmosphere that that you love in a horror comic, um, where there's not tanks and guns firing and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm writing the conclusion of a five-issue arc of Abe right now, and it, it gets really loud, and there, there's you know some pretty pretty heavy action, and um, and it just made sense. It just made sense to bring guns into this conclusion, but I find I really would rather not deal with guns as much as possible. I, I have a lot of shots of Abe kind of getting a gun and then throwing it to the ground, and I realize Mike does the same thing with Hellboy. He's always done the same thing with Hellboy. Like Hellboy has a gun. But you can tell Mike would kind of rather he not use it. He uses it as a like blunt instrument as much as he yeah, fires it. Exactly, um, and he's a terrible shot. And I think there's something about guns that kind of diminishes the the mood of a horror story. Um, I think there's something counterproductive there. Um, and having lots of guys with lots of guns really kills the mood because it's just you know it just becomes this this uh, fire show. Um, it's the reason why I'm not very much of a fan of the second Alien movie. Like, I love the first Alien movie, one of the best movies ever made. And the second one, like, I get why people like it, but it just doesn't appeal to me because... It's an action it's, movie uh, more than a horror movie. It, it is, and you're just you're just firing a lot of guns at a lot of things that are clearly made out of rubber and goo. And, um, I, I, what's, you know, I don't know what's interesting about that. Um, that one was always a lot less interesting to me than, than the first one, which I thought was a masterpiece. Let me ask you about Robert E. Howard, uh, because you've written... Uh, how many Solomon Kane stories have you written? I did two miniseries. Two miniseries. I mean, those are really more horror stories in a lot of ways than they are yeah. adventure well, stories. That's my, that's my take on Conan, too. It's like, I read all that stuff and I see a lot of horror in it, be- partly because Howard is so great with atmosphere and so great at making the world feel dangerous in a real, um, I mean, it's a word he would never use, but I would say in a real spiritual way. Like, uh, the danger in a Conan story isn't just about who Conan has to fight. Um, There's always a ton of atmosphere, and the threats always feel somehow horrific. There was this real dark element to it that I loved, that, like, I grew up on on Tarzan books, and I read... um, I read all the Tarzan novels when I was little. My grandfather was really into it. And um, I loved that stuff. But Burroughs, to me, didn't have that horror atmosphere that Howard brings to Conan and to everything he writes. Not everything, but so much of what he wrote had this really nice horror vibe to it that um, that made me relate to his stuff on a, on a higher level than I would have if it was straight up fantasy which i've never been a fan of let's talk about uh let's talk about your all-time favorites if you just want to give like a list and like a best of and then who you think is doing great work currently and there might be a lot of overlap there like with corbin and lovecraft and whatnot right probably well yeah i mean like the skull and slow death stuff was just tremendous for me it was so weird there was my favorite thing from that whole period was that there was there was this one issue of, um, there was one issue of Skull, and it was relatively early. It might have been issue four. It was right around that Lovecraft issue. Maybe it was issue three. And um, it was called A Gothic Tale, and it was, I think, the only issue of Skull where the whole comic was one story. 
but it was two chapters, and one chapter was drawn by Irons, and the other chapter was drawn by Corb, and it was written by uh, Tom Veach, Rick Veach's brother, uh-huh. and um, I think Greg did the front cover, and Corbin did the back cover, and it was just this masterpiece of a comic, so weird, and, and so like New England gothic in the worst, ugliest way, um, really cool stuff, uh, and... Um, and it was funny because when I was a self-publisher a long time ago doing my horror comics, uh, Tom Veach stopped by our table one day, and we were like, holy crap, we love your work, we're such big fans, it's so great to meet you. And he's like, oh, you, you, you're thinking of my, my brother Rick. And we're like, no, 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 we're thinking about you. And then we started rattling off stories from Skull and Slow Death, and um, I think he was just confused and surprised that anybody remembered that stuff. <laughs> Uh, but um, but it was you know it was nice to to meet him and he of course I, I later knew him through a lot of work he did for Dark Horse um, but uh, but yeah it was it, it, those those books made a big difference to me the the creepy and eerie stuff I read a lot of that as a kid not a lot of it really stuck because I think there was so much of it it's a lot it all kind of just washes together for me yeah yeah but I loved that it existed. I loved having it to buy at the at the newspaper store every you know few months or whatever, um, and but you know Corbin was the standout guy among all of that stuff for me, and so working with him now is a childhood you know dream come true. Um, he really is. He's like one of the top five great living cartoonists. Yeah, for sure. Um, Bruce Jones did a series with Pacific Comics when I was a kid. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He did two series. He did Alien Worlds and Twisted Tales. Yes. And it was all short stories written by him and drawn by various guys. I think some of it, at least some of it, was reprinted from Erie, and some of it I think was new. Um, he did a lot with Bernie, uh, Bernie Wrightson. Those books, that was like my favorite horror comic at that time. Um, it's great, you know, and it holds up really well. Both of those yeah. titles do. And then um, when Alan Moore was doing Swamp Thing, that remains some of my favorite comics, some of my f- favorite horror comics anybody's ever done. Um, he, you know, he took a schlocky, crappy superhero and turned it into an amazing horror comic with so much emotion. <clears throat> and I think Alan's stuff sometimes lacks emotion. It's too much about ideas and about um, cleverness. But Swamp Thing had so much heart, and and so when it went scary, it was really scary because you had an emotional connection with everybody. And he just did such brilliant work for his stint on Swamp Thing, which wasn't super long. Um, you know, and, and, and like these days, my favorite book that, that doesn't come out of Dark Horse, my favorite book that I buy, usually I, between Elizabeth and I, we buy it twice every month, is Revival. I love Revival. Um, you know, and that's a book that's not, it's not focused on a super dark atmosphere or anything, because Mike Norton's art is so pretty, and the colors tend to be kind of light and open, um, but there's but there's a great mood to the book, and, and it's such a great horror comic. The, the fact that most of my workday is focused on the Mignola stuff, the fact that most of my work is focused on horror comics is an incredible, you know, uh, victory for me, you know, um, that this is what I get to do, uh, and then bringing in the other stuff like Colder, the series, Paul Tobin and Juan Ferreira, who they've got a new issue number one coming out soon. Um, 
but that I, I'm not working on the current run, but I edited the first miniseries with them, and that was a really fun book to put together, and unlike anything else out there, um, and much more kind of like modern psychological twist on horror uh, with a strong supernatural element, a strong kind of fantasy element, but, um, but you know, morally it really went to those dark places that I find most interesting. Um, and that's the thing, like, I've, I think rather than my tastes in horror getting more conservative or more um, narrow as time goes by, they've actually branched out. And I think that the reason, the, the really simple and, and unhappy reason that they branched out is that there's very little quality out there in horror entertainment. So much of it is really not that great, um, especially in movies, that it's like, because I love that emotional charge and I love that dark morality of horror, I, um, I've grown more and more open to all the different versions of it in hopes that once in a while I'll stumble across a good one, you know? Um, and I feel like there's a lot of good horror being done in comics, way more than there is in movies. You know, most of the movie, most of the horror movies that come out are pretty damn bad. Um, but, you know, between between some of the stuff from IDW, from Image, um, there's really good horror comics coming out. And um, and it's not all uh, exactly in that wheelhouse that I'd most like to live in, which is very smart, very sophisticated, supernatural occult stories. That's kind of my sweet spot, my favorite place for horror. Um, but by being open to the other sort of, you know, subgenres or whatever, um, it, it, it's exposed me to a lot of good stuff. It's exposed me to more bad stuff than good, but that's just kind of how you have to, to go because, um, you know, you gotta, you got to kiss a lot of frogs. There's a lot of terrible stuff out there, and then there's a lot of kind of flawed but earnest good work. And then, there, like, watching The Exorcist the other night, re-watching The Exorcist the other night, and then uh, going, summoned through BPRD Vampire, the series that the twins did for us. You know, there's the occasional masterpiece, and I watched The Shining the other night. So occasionally you get something that's just so brilliant and so perfectly rendered um, that, uh, you know, that's what you hold out for. But those are the most rare, obviously. But I think there's, there's that, the space that we're forced to live in is more like good work, that maybe doesn't totally deliver on its promise. For instance, I watched Jacob Ladder the other night. That's a movie that I think is brilliant for about 50% of it, and then it just completely goes sideways. Um, but I will rewatch it once in a while, and I actually own a copy, and I don't own tons and tons of DVDs. But I own a copy because it's a really good, it's a really good attempt at doing a really good horror story, and it doesn't totally deliver, but I give it a lot of points for trying, and I think that's the, the that's the real compromise that I've got to make as a horror fan. I go to a lot of movies with, like, um, you know, everybody in comics lives in Portland. So Chris Sabella, Josh Williamson, and and, uh, and me and some other guys will go to horror movies together once in a while. And I find that I'm often the most forgiving guy in the audience of, of the, the group of us. Um, usually Sabella hates almost everything. Williamson falls very much in the middle. And then I wind up saying, no, that one, you know, like, I think that one was pretty good. Um, but uh, because I'm, I'm 
I would love for there to be another Exorcist or another novel like Salem's Lot or another comic like Alan Swamp Thing. And I think they do come along. And, you know, I'm really optimistic about, like, uh, Witches, the, the Scott Snyder book. Like, maybe that book will just be an out-and-out masterpiece um, beginning to end. But so often you wind up with a disappointing ending or you wind up getting bored to tears for the middle of it or it winds up, you know, out-and-out out insulting your intelligence like so so many horror movies. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, like the movie The Possession that I saw the other night that had that, like, straight-up rip-off of The Exorcist. Not the whole movie, but there, there was the climactic scene just was, like, ripped straight out of The Exorcist. Um, I would have given that movie a pass as good but not great, but then it just it just borrowed too much, too blatantly, too shamelessly. Um, but, you know, that would have been one where I would have said, eh, it's a little bit stupid, but there were some scares, and it was, it was pretty earnest, and they really tried to make the characters believable. I would, I would have been that happy with it were it not for the, the really gross way that it ripped off The Exorcist at the end. Right. Um, as far as horror comics go, you know, like, Revival has been my favorite thing for a while, and it's never missed... Um, it's never skimped on quality. Cool. Um, thank you, Scott. All right. Thanks, man. I want to thank Scott Alley and Jeff Zorno for their time. We definitely appreciate them getting on the uh, getting on the horn with us to talk about horror comics right in time for Halloween. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we depend on your donations to help us keep the lights on. You can donate to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast by going to cbldf.org and clicking the Donate button. This podcast is made possible in part with a donation from the Gaiman Foundation. If you want to refer us to a friend, we appreciate that. We're available streaming on our website or via iTunes. Either is a great way to listen to the podcast. So please tell a friend if you enjoy it or if you think they might enjoy it. My name is Alex Cox. I edit, produce, and have hosted this episode of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and have a great Halloween.